agitated state of mind. Read Byron's Manfred in bed. Terrible night. That's the chilling effect Lord Byron's poem had on Robert Schumann in 1829. Almost 20 years later, in 1848, as Schumann increasingly suffered from the inner voices of auditory hallucinations, he wrote this incidental music for the poem. Manfred found a resonance in the highly imaginative Schumann, who, like Byron, spent his short life in a continuance of enduring thought about poetry, music, and the fusing together of these two arts in prose and musical form. Schumann's musical reduction, removing the incest, for instance, streamlined the darker aspects and ended up making Manfred's guilt all the more unfathomable. question that Schumann related profoundly to this character. He wrote to Liszt, Never before have I devoted myself with such love and outlay of force to any composition as that of Manfred. And yes, there's also a terrible irony at work here. After failing in his own suicide attempt, Schumann spent his final two and a half years in an insane asylum. And whereas Manfred had unsuccessfully sought relief in madness, Schumann met his end while trying desperately to cling to evasive sanity. But more about that anon. Manfred in its original form was also not well suited for staged productions and any kind of practical libretto would require some substantial rewriting, something Schumann was loath to do, being fixated on the integrity of the Byron original. In fact, one of the most pointed criticisms of Berlioz by Schumann was made less at the music of the great Symphonie Fantastique and more at the detailed programme that Berlioz wrote for it. For Schumann, such a programme restricts a listener's imagination. What? Says you, this is the man who chose some of the most poetically evocative titles in all music and he's wagging his fingers at Berlioz. Yes, for Schumann, the titles for the likes of Dichter Liebe and Kinderzeinen, and I quote, came into existence later and are nothing but more precise pointers for performance and comprehension. Ah yes, performance, comprehension. Schumann's later revolutionary music criticism would pave the way for Chopin, Berlioz, Hummel, Bach, Weber and the Beethoven of the late quartets, prose that would eventually spark off the infamous row between the followers of Brahms on the one hand and Liszt and Wagner on the other. In between was much great music.
Literature came first to Schumann. His father was a book dealer and he spent years immersed in everything from the Greek classics to new writers like Walter Scott. But it was the romantic novelist Jean-Paul who proved to be his first formative influence. Schumann's personal writings from this period reflect the wallop he felt from his collision with the five great novels of Jean-Paul in particular. In the diaries, one encounters the young Schumann comparing overwhelming emotions to the striking visual effects of, say, a rainbow, a method straight out of a writer who often used natural scenes as a kind of extended, pathetic fallacy. We also meet the teenager who presents us with a kind of chicken-and-egg dilemma. Is he so much like Jean-Paul that he would have written the same way in any case? Or has his personality been forever changed by his reading experiences? Above all, the concept in Jean-Paul's works that will become crucial for his own musical and literary future, the idea of complementary dual personalities, not so much doppelganger as spiritual twins that will culminate in Schumann's own Floristan and Eusebius characters, and in the tonal dualism of many of the piano cycles of the 1830s. In this, and more, much more, the Bavarian writer will prove crucial to Schumann's rapidly developing artistic personality. In 1825, Schumann and friends formed a German literary society where they discussed literature and presented their own poetry for criticism. Schumann wrote, If only my talent for music and poetry would converge into a single point, the light would be not so scattered and I could attempt a great deal. Up until 1830, Schumann's interests in music and literature were fairly equally divided. But that year, he encountered an artist who, through his phenomenal playing, was about to influence every composer in Europe. Niccolò Paganini. Schumann now resolved to devote himself to music. He would become as great a virtuoso as Paganini, but on his own instrument, the piano. Is this what he was dreaming of? Who knows, but he would unite music and poetry, one would feed the other. These aims first came to fruition in the so-called Abegg variations and the Toccata for piano. The Toccata is the only of Schumann's original works that was inspired by considerations of technical difficulty. For unlike his contemporaries Chopin and Liszt and many others, Schumann did not write studies for the piano. No, it was the devil himself, Paganini, that he was wrestling with. He sustained a horrible injury trying to strengthen the fourth finger of his right hand and it ended his ambition of becoming a concert pianist on a par with Paganini. It was some invention called a chiroplast, or, or as Schumann himself graphically nicknamed it, the cigar mechanism. When the Toccata was completed in 1836, Schumann believed it was the hardest piece ever written and it may well have been for the final version of Liszt's Transcendental Etudes was not completed until 16 years later, and Chopin's Opus 10 Etudes, though published in 1833, are so pianistic that while many are extremely difficult, for the most part they tend to fall more naturally under the very well-trained fingers and hands of the virtuoso. The Toccata, 
does not. And it's a tribute to Schumann's imagination that he conceals the apparent bravura of what we hear. The piano original opens like this. Doesn't sound especially difficult, does it? Until you hear it played on something else, say, like its original inspiration, the violin. Sforzando first. Or here, the toccata once again, and violin once again, but this time pizzicato. And now back to the piano original. Pianistically speaking, the opening passages here are right-hand breakers. The stretches are uncomfortable and relentless, and unless you've tried playing this piece, you can't imagine the pain. Schumann scribbled in his diary, read that accursed E.T.A. Hoffman in the evening. One hardly dares to breathe while reading Hoffman. New worlds. Schumann saw himself in Hoffman's prose, and what he saw enthralled and disturbed him. Hoffman thought that music above the other arts, had an incredible power to captivate and affect audiences. He also believed music's power to captivate was both universal and personal. He writes, How very miraculous is music, but how inadequate is mankind's ability to fathom its profound secrets. Yet does not music reside in man's own breast and fill him with its enchantment until his whole being is devoted to it? It tears him from the stress and oppressive torment of everyday existence and elevates him to a new, transfigured life where, infused with great power, he surrenders with childlike piety to those things the spirit evokes in him and he's able to speak in the tongue of that unknown romantic realm. Like the sorcerer's apprentice reading aloud from his master's book of magic, he calls forth glorious apparitions from within, and they fly through his life in a dancing radiance, filling everyone who is privileged to see them with infinite, ineffable longing. Hoffman's use of the doppelganger idea was also much darker than Jean Paul. And Hoffman's world was a place where reality could switch to a terrifying fantasy in a flash. Schumann wrote, It sometimes seems to me as if my objective self wanted to separate itself completely from my subjective self, or as if I stood between my appearance and my actual being, between form and shadow. A literary response tragically prescient. Obsessed with these ideas, he then began to objectify a series of subjects, his closest associates. Clara Wieck became Zelia, a play on Cecilia, the patron saint of music. Christelle, his current girlfriend, became Caritas, and so on. The world refracted through poetic fancy. <laughs> 
A month later, in July in 1831, we read, Completely new persons enter the diary from this day forward. Two of my best friends, whom I've never seen before, they are Florestan and Eusebius. Florestan, the improviser, in many ways may have come from Beethoven's Fidelio, and Florestan represents the virtuoso side of Schumann. The origins of Eusebius are shadier. They may refer to the legendary Parisian lovers, French theologian Peter Abelard and his beloved Eloise. Earlier that year, Schumann had acquired a recent set of variations for piano and orchestra on Mozart's aria La Cidorem La Mano from Don Giovanni by a young unknown, Frédéric Chopin. Schumann was so impressed by the work that he decided to master it, but he couldn't. And so he began to speak through his Eusebius persona and described each of the variations as a reflection of the characters and events in Don Giovanni, finishing with the qualification, No matter how subjective this all may be, and how little Chopin may have intended it, I nevertheless bow my head to his genius. In a revised form, the entire passage would serve as the focal point for an article published in December 1831. Schumann writing, Hats off, gentlemen, a genius. Chopin was launched with that review. He was deeply grateful, but also a little embarrassed by Schumann's extravagant praise and writing style. Chopin himself wrote, In the fifth bar of the Adagio, he declares that Don Giovanni kisses Zerlina on the D-flat. Count Ludwig Platter asked me yesterday where her D-flat was. (laughs) Such a poetic reading of Chopin pushed Schumann towards his conception of the new criticism. Once again, he began to wed poetry and music, this time through music criticism. By March 1833, living in Leipzig, he was hard at work on music in the mornings and reading and writing in the afternoons. Evenings were given over to meeting friends, and it was here sometime in early June that the idea of publishing a musical review, the tone and colour of which shall be ever fresher and more varied than in other reviews, appeared. The Neue Zeitschrift for Musik was born. Schumann drew on all of his literary powers, on his diaries, and he unleashed upon the musical world his David's Bundler, or Band of David, or rather, the band of voices within him. Here's a discussion, for instance, of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, written by Florestan. I had to laugh, Florestan began, as he launched into the A major symphony. I had to laugh at the dry old actry who found in it a battle of giants, and in the last movement, their final destruction. Though he had to pass lightly over the Allegretto because it didn't fit into his plan. Now, about the symphony itself, this idea is not my own, but taken from an old volume of Cecilia. It is a most merry wedding. The bride is an angelic child with a rose in her hair. Unless I am greatly mistaken in the introduction the guests gather together, greeting each other with inverted commas. And, unless I am wrong, merry flutes recall that within the entire village, full of maypoles with many coloured ribbons, there reigns joy for the bride, Rosa. Now it becomes very still in the village outside. And here Florestan came to the Allegretto, taking passages from it here and there. Only a butterfly flits past. The organ begins, the sun is high in the sky, 
and single long oblique rays play upon the particles of dust throughout the church. And now all is in order and the priest approaches the altar and speaks first to the bride and then to the happiest of men. Then he asks for the I do that is to last forever. And the... I don't want to continue this picture! Thorstan thus broke off abruptly and tore into the clothes of the Allegretto. The sound was as if the sacristan was slamming the doors so that the noise reverberated throughout the whole church. Schumann's former life of unsociable solitude, of bookish and idyllic calm, was suddenly filled with feverish excitement and peopled with real companions. But this nervous energy began to tell on him. He was struck down by a serious attack of neurasthenia and he had violent rushes of blood to his head, inexpressible mental anguish, loss of breath and fainting fits. This all came to a head when he tried to throw himself from his fourth-storey window. He recovered, but the omens were not good. During these fertile years, Schumann's critical works also fed his own compositions. If you've time, I would urge you to check out Carnival, not from the perspective of a great performer, say, but from the perspective of an avid reader. Going forward in our book of Schumann, he hadn't written for the Neues Euschrift for ten years when an encounter with another young great composer in the making broke his silence. The article was entitled New Paths, and Schumann wrote, Many new and important talents have appeared, for a new force in music seems to have notified its existence. Sooner or later, someone would and must appear, fated to give us the ideal expression of the times, one who would not gain his mastery by gradual stages, but rather would spring fully armed like Minerva. And he has come. His name is Johannes Brahms. The year was 1854, and that February 10th, Schumann writes of a very strong and painful aural affection. Four days later, he's sitting in a restaurant with a friend and he suddenly puts down his newspaper and says, I can't read anymore. I keep hearing the note A. This progressed and soon he was hearing magnificent music with instruments of splendid resonance, the like of which have never been heard on earth before. Nearly two weeks later, he suddenly left the house in the pouring rain, wearing only his dressing gown and slippers. He went straight to the River Rhine and threw himself into the river. He was rescued by fishermen. It was the beginning of the end. He was placed in an asylum and though relatively healthy at first, quickly declined and died a year later. In the notoriously jealous and competitive world of the arts, Robert Schumann proved himself to be one of the most generous and selfless souls who ever lived. This spirit is in his music, something Brahms also celebrated in his first piano concerto. <laughs> 